This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss why vaccinations are so important with clinical pharmacist Andy Donald. We'll learn why it's so hard for women over 40 to lose weight with author Gabrielle O'Hare. We'll discover the benefits of supervised consumption sites for toxic drugs with Dr. Dan Werb. And lastly, we'll find out how to effectively self-advocate in the healthcare system with author Melissa Melanthi. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. Researchers led by Hiroshi Ono at the Ricken Center for Integrative Medical Sciences in Japan have discovered a type of gut bacteria that might help improve insulin resistance and thus protect against the development of obesity and type 2 diabetes. The study, published in late August in the scientific journal Nature, involved genetic and metabolic analysis of human fecal microbiomes and then corroborating experiments in obese mice. Our guts contain trillions of bacteria, many of which break down the carbohydrates we eat when they would have otherwise remained undigested. While many have proposed that this phenomenon is related to obesity and prediabetes, the facts remain unclear because there are so many different bacteria and there is a lack of metabolic data. Ono and his team at Ricken have addressed this lack with their comprehensive study and in the process discovered a type of bacteria that might help reduce insulin resistance. Disrupted connections between memory and appetite regulating brain circuits are directly proportional to body mass index, notably in patients who suffer from disordered or overeating that can lead to obesity, such as binge eating disorder, according to new research from the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Published recently in Nature, the research notes that individuals who are obese have impaired connection between the dorsolateral hippocampus and the lateral hippocampus, which may impact their ability to control or regulate emotional responses when anticipating rewarding meals or treats. ChatGPT could help to increase vaccine uptake by debunking myths around jab safety, say the authors of a study published in peer-reviewed Journal of Human Vaccines and Immunotherapies. The researchers asked the artificial intelligence chatbot the top 50 most frequently asked COVID-19 vaccine questions. They included queries based on myths and fake stories such as vaccine-causing long COVID. Results show that ChatGPT scored 9 out of 10 on average for accuracy. The rest of the time it was correct, but left some gaps in the information provided, according to the study. Based on these findings, experts who led the study say that an AI tool is a reliable source of non-technical information to the public, especially for people without specialist scientific knowledge. However, The findings do highlight some concerns about the technology, such as ChatGPT's changing its answers in certain situations. I'll be joined by Annie Donald in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. 
Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. Andy Donald is a certified geriatric pharmacist and president of the Health Depot Pharmacy. His passion to help patients and deliver personalized services led him to launch the Health Depot, Canada's only online clinical pharmacy. He's active in his profession, serving on several committees, including the Alzheimer's Society of Ontario's Ontario Dementia Care Alliance, and he is the Prescribe It Pharmacy Ambassador for Canada Health InfoWay. The Health Depot Pharmacy is an online clinical pharmacy providing free, no-obligation consultations. They'll meet with you to discuss your medications and answer your questions and deliver your prescriptions free anywhere in Ontario. For more information, you can visit thehealthdepot.ca. Welcome back to the show, Andy. How you doing, man? Pretty good. Thanks, Jamie. Good to be back. So I've been reading that in the U.S. they've just approved updated vaccines for COVID, I think by Moderna and I think Pfizer. So what we're going to be talking about today is incredibly timely. But let's sort of remind everybody, why are immunizations so important, particularly when it comes to the flu and COVID? Well, because they are science's little cheat. They help prepare our immune system particularly viruses. Uh, Viruses are not actually living. They hijack our cells and they cause damage and they hijack, they make more of their virus and then your cell dies and they spread to other cells. But why immunizations for certain viruses that are very deadly or very debilitating that spread quickly? It's science's little cheat to let you build an army of antibodies that can attack it if it gets in your body to really minimize, not necessarily immunity, but minimize your symptoms you have and how much damage happens. So it allows you to recruit and mount a good immune response very quickly. All right. So many people take flu shots and many people do or perhaps should take their COVID-19 shots. What are the differences between the flu and COVID? Well, they can be bad viruses, right? So COVID-19 is actually just a cold. COVID-19 and the flu are actually names of the diseases, whereas SARS-CoV-2 is actually the virus that causes COVID-19 and influenza causes the flu. But for simplicity's sake, we're just going to call them COVID-19 and flu today. Okay, sure. But they're both extremely small viruses. Actually, COVID-19 is actually a billionth the size of a human cell. They're both just simply a protein layer with one single genetic strand inside the middle of it. It's not living. No, no viruses are living. They need your actual, to get inside your own cell, to then hijack your cell's machinery to make more viruses to butt off and continue to spread. So they can't live on their own. Viruses are tiny and they actually need a host. Okay, so if they're not living, how actually are they transmitted and how contagious are they really? Well, they are transmitted because they have this outer layer of proteins that can attach to certain receptors in your cell. COVID-19 has, well, you probably heard a lot of the spike protein. That's how we made the vaccination against. It attaches to certain cells, ACE2 receptors in our body that lives all over, including our lungs, but then a lot of organs, heart, lungs, uh, kidneys, all over your body. And by attaching to it, it enters the cell. And it fuses with the membrane and spits in its genetic code into the inside of your cell, and then it hijacks, right? Whereas the flu enters by a hemagglutinin protein, attachment protein as well. That's where the H comes in the the flu classification, such as H1N1 or H3N1. That's the, the attachment protein for the flu. 
They're both very uh, contagious, and they can spread in our respiratory droplets that we expel in each breath. So it's the mist you see coming out of your mouth on a really cold day. That's the mist. That mist coming out when it's cold outside is tiny water, called, uh, water molecules that actually are freezing and become heavier. And, uh, and you still, even though they become heavier, they just kind of gently drift off until they disappear. Well, indoors, that mist is invisible and can stay floating in the air for hours, like viruses can stay in those water particles for hours. And in fact, COVID-19 was shown to stay floating in the air for a minimum of three hours indoors. Wow. This is why it's important to wear a mask, and especially why it was mandated at the height of the pandemic once you're indoors, because it's, it's floating in the air and you can just breathe it in. And then once you breathe it in, the viruses in the water particles can then attach to your lung cells and infect your lung cells. And in fact, both are very contagious. COVID-19 is actually, though, three times more contagious than the flu because it's a cold uh, virus. And, it's, uh, and in the height of the pandemic, it was actually 10 to 20 times more deadly. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, if, if people are looking for it, there's no lack of information about COVID-19. And it certainly has been the focus, I think, of, of, of a lot of discussions in health and wellness. But why is it so bad? And what actually is it doing to our bodies and in particular our lungs? It's less about what the virus is doing and more about how our body reacts to the virus, right? Okay. So once it attaches to our alveoli, those are the tiny little air sac cells where we exchange oxygen in our lungs. What happens is our body can tend to, while trying to over time develop an uh, immune response to it, it has an inflammatory response. It swells up and it build, makes fluid. Well, unfortunately, with COVID-19, our bodies uh, had an, certain individuals had a really heightened overreaction to the virus where we had our own, they called it a cytokine storm where a lot of swelling and fluid build up in our alveoli, our lung cells. Well, what happens with, if you have too much fluid build up in a lot of areas in our body over time, if we don't get rid of that fluid quickly, it becomes hardened and it becomes scar tissue, a process which is known in the lungs as pulmonary fibrosis. And they found in COVID-19, about 5% of individuals who got COVID-19 got some extent of pulmonary fibrosis where their lungs turned to cartilage. A good analogy of this is, uh, you know, judo and rugby players, have you seen their ears sometimes? Yeah. So if you get hit hard in your ears and they swell, there's not a very good way to flow out that fluid. And if you don't release that fluid and cut it and release that pressure real quick, what will happen is your body's natural defense mechanism, it converts that fluid that uh, is just very squishy fluid initially into cartilage. And that's what they know as uh, they call cauliflower ears. Right. The boxers, well, the boxers used to get that. Boxers as well. You got a lot of sports if they have damage to their ears. Well, that's what's happening to, in our lungs with COVID-19 is causing cauliflower lungs in about 5% of those infected. And that's what the main concern was. It was like, how do you know who we're going to be in, uh, have this reaction? And it just caused a lot of excess swelling in your lungs. So with the excess swelling, I guess what happens is your lung capacity diminishes, right? Is that, is that really the, the key or is, it, is there more yeah. to it? Well, because eventually if you, your lungs, it's very thin cell membrane around those air sacs. And if it becomes too thick and then it becomes cartilage, you can't exchange oxygen. So a lot of people can rapidly lose the lung capacity. And we'll see it in a few years from now, people had a lot of damage done that people can, just like smoking, right, does the exact same thing. Uh, it can cause COPD over time. Okay, so we've covered the lungs. I think there's sort of some information out there that COVID can also cause strokes. Can you explain what that is about and how that happens? It's the same process with your lungs. Blood comes to your lungs and you exchange oxygen. Next, your blood goes to your heart and then back out to your body and it shoots blood up to your brain. 
Well, if you have too much swelling around your lung cells, those little tiny arterioles where you exchange the blood exchanges with the oxygen carbon dioxide, if it swells too much around there, then it can pinch those little arterioles. And what happens, it can cause mild blood pooling, right? And if you have blood pooling, then what happens, your blood clots. So over time, if you have too much pooling, then that blood can, you know, once the, if a little bit of a clot breaks free from that little blockage, the, the next place it usually travels up is to the brain, and then it can get lodged in your brain and cause a stroke. So it's, again, in relation to too much swelling around your lungs, usually. Okay. So a few moments ago, you mentioned that the viruses, and in particular COVID, float in the air was a surprisingly long amount of time. So how do we protect ourselves in those circumstances? What do we do? Well, early days, the only way we could do that was avoidance by wearing masks indoors. But, you know, now as COVID becomes, mutates and becomes more contagious, less severe, I mean, that doesn't become as practical for everyone to wear masks indoors the rest of your lives, but the strategy then shifts more towards protecting yourself with the vaccination. As I mentioned, science little cheat, where we all need to get an annual flu shot and COVID shot to build up our protection. We need to build our army to help our protect our immune system and our bodies. Okay, so how do the vaccinations actually protect us? And why are they so important, for example, for, for older Canadians? So, yeah, this is important because understanding the science behind it is, uh, and not understanding actually is why usually there's a lot of people who push back and don't want to get vaccination, why there's anti-vaxxers out there. So understanding that science is very important. So the normal process when a virus enters our body is that after some time, eventually our immune system recognizes that it's not a part of our body and it needs to get rid of it. These cells called dendritic cells swallow it up and chop up the virus into little pieces. These little pieces then are presented to T cells, which then go on and recruit B cells, which then B cells are the ones that make antibodies that are released into the bodies that quarantine viruses and allow our body to get rid of them, right? So once we, that process happens, our body then can make tons of antibodies and memory cells as well. So then if we ever get that virus in our body again, we can ramp up a very quick immune response to it. This process, though, of getting that immunity so we can attack a, a foreign virus usually takes 10 to 14 days. That's the problem. So the nasty virus can cause a lot of harm and possibly even leading towards death in that four, 10 to 14 days. So usually the nastiest of viruses, we have to develop a vaccinations. Science is a little cheat. So where the vaccines are a cheat is that most vaccines nowadays, right, are usually composed of dead, chopped up virus bits, only a portion or just a portion of the virus. Right. This then we, we inject into our body and allows our body to do that 10 to 14 day process to then build antibody factories against that virus and memory cells. So if we then actually do get infected with the virus in the future, we'll, our body will remember and we'll be able to ramp up massive amounts of production of antibodies in one to two days rather than one to two weeks, 10 to 14 days. I think of it as like an analogy, like going back to boxing. The vaccines are almost like sparring, right? It allows the body to have the muscle memory, you know, to defend yourself and keep your gloves up and effectively fight without the risk of actually getting hurt in the fight. So Absolutely. It's a sparring match where the spar doesn't punch back. Right, exactly, exactly. right? But there's, there's also a lot of myths around vaccinations. Like, I know, for example, that when I get vaccinations, I tend to be the guy that has, like, the sore arm, and maybe I feel a little bit punky, as though, like, I'm almost getting sick, even though 
it's really just my my body going through the sparring process. But I think a lot of people believe that if they take the vaccines, they're actually getting the illness that the vaccines are trying to prevent. Can you help us debunk that myth? Absolutely. That is a really misconceived uh, notion about what's happening. COVID-19s and flu vaccines, right, Yeah. can't make you sick. It's impossible. If you get a fever or tiredness after an injection, those are signs that your immune system has been fooled and thinks it's under attack. Right. So when we get a fever, the purpose of the fever is to try to kill viruses. We crank up our temperature of our blood and our body to try to melt the outer layer of the proteins in viruses to allow us to kill it quicker, right? Yeah. So it's a sign that your body's actually doing its job. All right. Last question. And that is, if you should become infected with COVID or the flu, are there actually any medications out there that can help us? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the first thing is to build up your immunity and um, with having good vaccination. That's by far the most important right. thing. Yeah, yeah. But even if you're, especially if you're immunocompromised and whatnot, there are a couple of medications that can be used to treat to make sure you don't have as much damage done as well from COVID-19 or the flu. And they work by both Paxlovid, which is used to treat COVID-19, and Tamiflu, which is used to treat the flu. How they work is they have to be taken, though, like Paxlovid within five days of your symptoms start. Whereas Tamiflu has to be started within 48 uh, hours of your symptom start. And what they do is they help to block your, the ability for the virus to be released from your cells. So they help to quarantine the viruses in the cells that they're, they've already infected and then allow your body to go in and eat and kill that cell rather than spitting off millions of viruses into your body. So it helps to stop the spread as much as quickly to limit how much damage there has happened as well. So that's why Paxlovid and Tamiflu can be a very useful ally and it just augments your immune system even more. So keeping them quarantined in a certain area to allow the antibodies that you've built up to destroy and kill the virus. Right. And we should stress that bleach is actually not effective, correct? Yeah, yeah. Anything really that the big orange man down south uh, recommended, (laughs) we definitely don't listen to any of that. Anything else really doesn't kill, and and antibiotics definitely don't kill viruses. Well, there's so many other myths we can discuss another day, but yes, bleach and all that other kind of stuff is not effective. It's really, really down to vaccinations and a couple medications that can really help us in the battle against some of these nasty viruses. Thanks so much for clearing that up and coming on the show today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Jamie. That was Andy Donald. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss losing weight after 40 on The Tonic. Is fasting part of your health and wellness routine? Lifelong Labs can give you the tools you need to start fasting. Fasting can improve your health, your mind, and your body. Join the Lifelong Labs community now and learn more about fasting. For more information, visit lifelonglabs.com. If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal, proudly Canadian and family-owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO-accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. At 48 years old with no job and feeling like her life was being pulled from under her, Gabrielle O'Hare decided to fulfill a decade-long ambition and retrain as a personal trainer. 
Over the years, she'd struggled with her weight and powerful food cravings. And as she got into her 40s, suffered from regular injuries that prevented her from making progress with her fitness. She hoped becoming a personal trainer would give her the answers that she'd been looking for. And when the COVID lockdown ended and Jibs finally reopened, she was inundated with clients who were in a similar position struggling with their weight, yet unable to stick to a diet. In the privacy of her garden gym, they shared their experiences with her. They didn't want killer physiques. They just wanted to regain control of their bodies and feel confident in their skin. But they struggled to change their eating habits. Before long, she noticed a pattern emerging. The same blockers were getting in the way of all her clients. And the concept for her new book, Why Women Over 40 Can't Lose Weight, was born. Welcome to the show, Gabrielle. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me today, Jamie. So let's get right to it. Why is it that mm-hmm. it's harder for women to lose weight after 40? Well, as you probably know, it's a big topic here in the UK, but menopause is a big thing that there's a really high awareness for of women at the moment. And certainly there are things that happen to women that change in the bodies that make them more likely to put weight on and can make it harder to lose it. But it's not impossible. And one of the things, or the biggest thing that I've understood from my own experience and and from working with women, the real things that make it difficult for women to lose weight after 40 is because they have got so used to taking care of other people, they really have forgotten how to take care of themselves. And they're busy, they're stressed, they eat on the fly, they try and go without food because they haven't got time or they're too bothered about looking after other people. And what's happened over the years is they tend to create quite bad eating habits that eventually mean that they start to put weight on. Okay, so regular listeners to this show know that when I was 38 years old, I actually lost 52 pounds through a regimen of diet and exercise, changed my life, and I've more or less kept that weight off. I'm now 57. You know, the weight loss is one thing. That's a challenge, right? But the, yeah. the real trick is actually keeping it off once you've you know, reached whatever goals it is that you're looking at. And so what do you think are some of the habits that inhibit weight loss? I have my own thoughts, but what do you think? I mean, that's a really impressive weight loss. And, you know, congratulations on that. You know, that's a, that's a huge achievement. One of the things that I see that the habits that have the biggest impact on the clients I have is the fact that they're more interested in looking after other people than looking after themselves. Okay. And we're human beings at the end of the day, you know, women... And, you know, I, I don't want to generalize, but my, my book is about women. But I'm sure men will, will resonate with this as well. We have a lot of priorities. We have to work really hard with our careers, with our families, keeping our house together. And we're human beings. We need some reward for that hard work. And quite often what happens is we then start to turn to food to be that thing that we reward, we reward ourselves with. You know, we live in a world where we have all these amazing tasting snacks and food wherever we go. And it's very easy to think, oh, I've worked hard today. I'll just sit on the sofa with a glass of wine and some chocolate. And then it starts to be, I'm having a stressful day. I'll just pick up a a bar of chocolate while I'm filling my, my car up. And we start to feel that we need the pleasure that we get from this food to make the rest of our lives more bearable. And we start to feel we create an over-reliance on that than actually finding other sources of pleasure in our lives, like hobbies and other pastimes. You know, it starts to become all about the food. And that's very common in women who've got a lot of jobs in the house, you know, cooking for the family, planning meals, doing the shopping. It's very easy for that to become too much of a preoccupation. So you're, I think what you're describing is emotional eating, right? Like it's, it's it you know, like I feel bad. 
You know what will make me feel good? Chocolate. Chocolate is my friend. Or, you know, potato chips or ice cream. Absolutely. And it's so easy to do. You know, we don't have to leave our house. We don't have to leave the room. We don't have to interrupt anything. We just grab it and go. And it's instant pleasure. It's instant compensation for being, for working too hard or being taken for granted or being fed up that day. And I think, you know, emotional eating is something that we we recognize. It's a very commonly used term. But I think what is actually quite helpful is to start to be a little bit more descriptive about that and how we use it. And maybe tie that into the dissatisfaction people have with their lives. You know, a lot of people have classic midlife crisis where you can feel that, you know, your life is in flux or you need to, you want, you're craving something else. And food can be so much a part of the anesthetic, I guess, that you're using to stop yourself from exploring that. It becomes very hard to let go of. Yeah. I mean, and if you like food and I, I you know, I love food. And, and so, and, and for me, the emotional eating will occur like late at night. So my whole family's asleep. Mm-hmm. I will then go and sneak the food. Um, And, you know, I've discussed it here before, like I will eat to keep myself up so that I don't have to go to sleep because maybe I'm having Mm -hmm. anxious nightmares or dreams. Yeah. So what do you see are the barriers preventing women from prioritizing their health? Like I think you touched upon it and that is just sort of a a busier lifestyle. Is it simply that or is there something else? I think fundamentally women don't feel, I mean, I I was chatting to a, a, a client um, you know, just a couple of hours ago over here, and she was saying that she felt selfish if she if she made what she wanted for tea. Hmm. So she'll give in to what her kids make. You know, her kids might want pizza and chips, and she wants something healthier, and she feels selfish if she makes that choice for herself. So that can be a big barrier that you don't, you feel you just suddenly have this inherent guilt of of doing anything for yourself. One of the other things that has a huge impact, actually, and you, you may well resonate with this, is when other people sabotage your efforts. Right. You can have a well-meaning, you know, well, maybe not so well-meaning, but you can have, you know, I had a client who really had to lose weight because she had a very serious health issue, you know, and a doctor had said, you need to, you need to lose this weight. It was really important for her. She, was, she wasn't old, she was young, she had a, had a young family, so she really needed to be well. And she would try so hard all day to sort of stick to her diet. And then her husband, who was also overweight, would go to the shop and then come back home and snuggle up on the sofa with her at the end of the night and try and sort of say, oh, I bought these things for us to, to share together as if it was a bit of a show of love. Yeah. But really, he didn't like the fact that her giving up was either spoiling his fun or show him, showing him up to be greedy. And when you start to look at society... We can have very, you know, the pressure to eat cake or or sweets at work, to have that extra drink when you go to someone's house that you don't really want to have, to eat the food someone's cooked for you. And for some people, they can really be surrounded with this pressure all the time. And they're eating not because they want that piece of cake. You know, if you really want that piece of cake, you have that piece of cake. But if you're having those things because you're under pressure to do it by someone else, then, then you shouldn't be eating it. And... You know, that type of thing can become very pervasive and be something that we face so regularly. It becomes enough to counteract any of the good, you know, the good days that we're having when we're sticking to our diet. You know, our whole weekend can be a write-off because people are putting us under pressure to eat things that we don't really want. Okay, so these are systemic or social impacts on yeah. a person's individual health. How do you get beyond that? Mm. So, like, you've identified what the barriers are. How do we, how do we move beyond yeah. those barriers? Well, people have to really start to take a, a real honest look at their own relationship with food. And quite often, I mean, I don't know how you have this worked for you over the, over the years when you've done this. You have to unpick your own issues and you have to understand what they are. 
And, you know, as simple as it sounds for us to talk about these things, and I don't think we're saying anything that people would be stunned by necessarily, people don't always see their own behaviours for what they are. And, you know, again, very often, you know, we're all busy, we're all living these sort of 100-mile-an-hour lives. We're often on automatic pilot when it comes to making food choices. We eat what's in the cupboard, we eat what someone gives us. We sort of munch on that thing because we always munch on it and we've forgotten that we've even done it. You know what I think the issue is? I think you reach a certain age and there's so much more that we have to do to maintain ourselves, right? Like when you're in your 20s and 30s, you know, you're almost on autopilot, but then you kind of hit your 40s and 50s and all of a sudden, oh, I have to do more stretching or, oh, I can't do that high impact exercise because I'll injure myself and then I can't exercise at all. Or, you know, it takes longer to brush your teeth. You have to floss more and do more. And it gets to the point where I sort of resent all the things that I have to do, have to do, that I didn't have to do. And I think healthy eating and exercise, unless it becomes a lifestyle choice, unless you can see the connection as to how it all interacts, it just becomes one of those things that you have to do and breeds resentment. That's how I see it. You know, it really does. And I think sometimes as well, people get to this age and they feel like they've been on a diet all their life. And they might have been thinking and trying and making an effort, but see that the weight's sliding backwards feel like it doesn't it's not working anymore and just be tired of that whole battle and that exactly and then just give into it right and i think again you don't quite realize the things that you might maybe accept the things that you have to do at this different age group and just know that everyone else is struggling because i think sometimes people really feel it's only them I'm the only person who can't do this. I'm the only person who can't stay out of the cupboard. I'm the only person who's got no motivation or no willpower. And this is why I love having conversations, you know, especially, you know, with people like you who've had these, you know, you talk about staying up and eating to, to not sleep. People who've had these problems with food. We've, so many people have had and are having very difficult relationships with food. And I think when you start to realize that you're not alone, and there are real genuine reasons that we can we can explain about why you have these compulsions to eat or you struggle to stick with a healthy diet. And I think that that can be the first thing that takes the pressure off people. And you think, oh, right, so it's not me. I'm not lazy. I'm not unmotivated. I'm not a waste of space. This is, there are reasons for this and everyone's the same. And I think that is the first step to actually start to address it because it takes the pressure away from thinking that you're the failure, you're the problem. And then you can start to sit back and look at different things and start to then put together a different way of living with a different motivation, you know. And sometimes I find that people, when you take away the pressure to be on a weight loss diet and for a battle that they're really tired of having and say, well, look, you're telling me that you're tired all the time or you can't keep your eyes open in the afternoon. Well, how about we think about eating for energy and eating to take really good care of you at this age? Does that change how you think about eating? And it does. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. That was Gabrielle O'Hare. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the benefits of supervised consumption sites for toxic drugs on The Tonic. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. I'd like to give a shout-out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. 
This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Dan Wurr, PhD, is an epidemiologist and policy analyst with expertise in overdose, HIV, addictions, and drug policy. Dr. Werb is a research scientist at the Li Kai-shing Knowledge Institute at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. He's also an assistant professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases and Global Public Health at the University of California, San Diego. Dr. Werb is director of the Center on Drug Policy Evaluation, a recognized global leader in cutting-edge policy research and communications. He's published dozens of studies on issues related to health policy and addictions, with a focus on preventing the transition of street youth into injection drug use, as well as on identifying the impact of policy and public health interventions on street-based drug-using populations. Welcome to the show, Doctor. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. So for those who actually read the news, supervised consumption sites are sort of have been in the news lately, both for positive reasons and negative reasons, and it's sort of a politically charged topic, or at least I think it is. So I thought it would be interesting to bring you on the show to discuss it. What are some of the objections that you've heard to supervise consumption sites for toxic drugs? Yeah, it's such a good question. And I think, you know, this issue is maybe a little bit more nuanced than it might seem from the headlines. A lot of people across the political spectrum, you know, I think agree given the decades of evidence that shows that these sites are really effective in doing what they're trying to do, which is save people's lives. You know, the objections aren't so much about whether these sites should exist or not. It's more about how do we minimize any kind of negative spillover into communities and how do we maximize the site's potentials in in stopping people from dying of an overdose and, and potentially even sort of stabilizing their lives. Okay, so to my mind, like I think everybody would agree the theory of it is good. I would say the actual practical application is what raises the issues, right? Like I don't think there's, I don't know that there's that many people who significantly object on moral grounds. I mean, people are taking drugs and we don't want them to die. And so being moralistic about it isn't terribly helpful. However, I think you do need to look at like the community impacts and and perhaps like maybe we can just define them a little bit more. Like my, sure. under, my like my understanding is like people's concerns consist of well, then you're bringing a lot of you know people together who may cause problems in the community or there may be dirty or there may be drug use outside of these clinics or there may be spin-off effects such as perhaps rising crime rates or or you know damage to surrounding areas. Are those the types of objections that you're hearing? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, and, and I think you, you really hit the nail on the head. Like, Canada has argued this issue for decades. It went to the Supreme Court, you know, almost a little over 15 years ago. Supreme Court found that there was a medical benefit to these sites, right? They kept people alive. 
that was based on you know, dozens and dozens of peer-reviewed research papers that showed that they were effective in preventing people from, you know, transmitting or being infected with HIV, of uh, dying of an overdose, of, you know, demonstrated that they were people who visited these sites were more likely to, you know, be connected with treatment. And what you're saying is, I, I think you really nailed it, that the objection here is how do we design these sites so that we don't have people congregating outside, we don't have, or at minimum, we don't have community members who feel unsafe in the vicinity. And I think, I'll be honest, Jamie, and this is you know maybe not the most popular opinion, but I, I think that as researchers, we haven't really looked at those issues as much. We've been so focused on issues demonstrated, you know, trying to demonstrate the effectiveness of these sites and some of the second, what we considered second order issues, like how to design them in the best way to like minimize people congregating outside or some of the drug-related litter that can occur around these sites. Like those haven't been as much of a focus just because their benefit around you know saving people from dying of an overdose is so critical to ending this overdose crisis that has claimed you know thousands, tens of thousands of lives in Canada. So what we're seeing now, I think, is communities that, again, like, you know, I follow this issue really closely online. I read the National Post. I read the Toronto Sun. I read people's comments on Twitter. Like, I don't really see anyone out there saying they should close. It's more about, well, community members who are concerned about safety and, you know, just feeling like there's zones or areas around these sites that, you know, they feel uncomfortable around. And I think that's a really good place to be having this debate, personally. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's contextual, right? Because you want the public support for these, right? And that gets eroded when you hear about crime or you hear about property values going down or you hear about whatever collateral damage these sites cause, because let's face it, they do. They just do. And, and you don't want nimbyism. You, you know, they need to be put in areas where people can access them. But by the same token, I, I think these concerns can't just be sort of negated by saying, okay, but we're saving lives. That's true. But, you know, there are other issues at play. But I think maybe we should switch gears a bit and focus on, like, other benefits. So aside from saving lives, which, of course, is paramount, are there other benefits to these sites? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, their immediate function, right, like when you look at just what they're designed to do, theory behind it is that people supervised, often medically supervised space that people inject drugs within using clean and sterile equipment. So what does that mean? That means that if that somebody is definitely not going to be infected with, you know, HIV or hepatitis C or something else if they're injecting within the site, right, because they're using sterile equipment. And I think now in the midst of this overdose crisis that is just accelerating and getting worse, uh, year over year, their greatest benefit is that if you overdose within the walls of one of these sites, you will be revived. You will not die. And, you know, I think there's now been 40 years or so of supervised injection sites in place around the world, and I think there's been maybe two deaths associated with uh, the use of that site, of those sites. And so that that is like a huge public health victory. That means that these sites are just incredibly effective at what they do. And then there's the second order benefits, which is that these are sites where people get naloxone. Naloxone is a medication that basically interrupts the flow of opioids into, the, into your brain. 
So if you are overdosing and uh, on opioids and you're provided with naloxone, which can be done like in an instant very easily, you will be revived. You will not die. And so these have, these sites have become distribution centers for naloxone, and that has a major community impact as well, right, all across communities. They're also, when they're designed in the most optimal way, they either can provide people with treatment for their substance use on site or connect them in a really effective sort of low barrier way to treatment elsewhere. And so, you know, there's good evidence suggesting that people who use supervised injection sites have a higher likelihood of connecting with treatment than people who do not use these sites, right? So Mm -hmm. rather than kind of, you know, I think that's all to say that these aren't sites that prolong people's drug use. They're not kind of compensating. There's no moral hazard associated with using these sites. Like people don't take greater risks with their drug use or prolong their drug use because they use these sites or these because these sites exist. It's actually the opposite. And, you know, for that reason, this is why they've been such an effective tool in the toolbox for, you know, our broader efforts at trying to end this really horrible overdose crisis. You know, at, at the beginning of the interview, you sort of framed the issue as a human rights issue when you when you mentioned the Supreme Court case. Uh, you should know I was a commercial litigator for almost 20 years. What is the argument? What are some of the human rights issues regarding supervised consumption sites for those who don't know? Well, the major issue that was before the, the Supreme Court was, uh, and I don't want to get too technical, but yeah. basically these sites need an exemption from Canada's federal drug laws to allow people to use illegal drugs on site. And that exemption can be based on a medical or scientific benefit. So that's how the federal drug law is worded. Basically, if you can demonstrate that there's a medical or scientific benefit to an intervention, then it can operate and people can, you know, possess and use drugs on the premises. So before the Supreme Court's case, you know, there was no clear legal argument that these sites provided a medical benefit. But when the federal government at the time, under Stephen Harper, moved to close Vancouver's supervised consumption site, which at that time was the only one in the, in the country, there was this court case that was brought forward. And basically what was determined by the Supreme Court is based on the scientific evidence that demonstrated a clear medical benefit, like people had a right to this medical intervention. And it would be essentially illegal to deny people the benefit of an effective medical intervention that, you know, just based on uh, government opposition. So that's what that argument hinged on. And since then, you know, this was in the mid-2000s, since then, the evidence that they've been effective has just, you know, continued to proliferate. Fantastic. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show today to explain that for us. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss advocating for yourself within the healthcare system on The Tonic. Join the Big Carrot for their Courtyard Market Sunday, September 17th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Shop local organic vendors and enjoy green roof activities and drop-in garden workshops. There's barbecue, live music, big deals, and a kid's craft zone. Fun for the whole family. And admission is free. Stop by 348 Danforth Avenue. The Big Carrot, your one-stop shop for everything health and wellness. If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal. 
proudly Canadian and family-owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO-accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Melissa Melanthi, who has an MA in psychology, is a healthcare expert, advocate, and critically acclaimed author who has devoted her career to helping people navigate and understand America's very complicated and imperfect healthcare system. After the unfortunate death of her mother from ovarian cancer and an eight-month-long nightmare, uh, Melanthi began a passionate journey to fight for patient advocacy. She's on a mission to help patients and medical professionals improve the quality of care in America by raising awareness, facilitating communication, and educating others so that they don't have to go through what her family and mother did. Welcome to the show, Melissa. How are you? Great. How are you? Doing well. Uh, Listeners know that I've been dealing with my own uh, medical issues and had to do a fair bit of of self-advocacy. A little bit different here in Canada than in the United States, but doctors are doctors and hospitals are hospitals. So I thought it would be interesting to bring you on so that you could talk about your experience with your mother and the importance of advocacy within the health system, which I think a lot of people don't understand. Okay? Yes. Why did you decide to write a book about self-advocacy in the first place? I wrote a book because I didn't want others to go through what my family and I went through. Uh, it took me 10 years because the first couple versions were full of rage. And I wound up finally getting a version out in 2021 that ended each chapter with what I did and what I would do differently and how to advocate and what you absolutely have to do in order to survive. And so to answer your question, I wanted to give something to my readers and everybody that's listening, things that we went through and how you can fix them and how you can possibly succeed in your own health. Yeah. And if you've never had to do it before, you know, like it hits you either because either you because you you are, you know, physically drained or, you know, you are mentally drained because as a family member, it hits you at at your low point. So, you know, garnering the energy and being an effective advocate is actually very challenging. And and you you also don't know this, but my listeners do. I was actually a commercial litigator for 20 years. So I know something, a little something about advocacy, but it's very different when it's personal. What are some of the problems that patients face in navigating their own care? What do you see? There's a lot. And I unfortunately had another example of this happened to me at the end of 2022, losing my dad over a three-week course in a, a local hospital. And you know, advocacy is much more needed today than it even was in 2010 and in a post-COVID world. What do I see as far as issues is a lot of people are not, they, they don't ask the right questions. They might be afraid to ask questions. They may be afraid to push back against doctors. I always tell people that they need to get their records. If they don't get them hard copy, they should get them through the portal. You know, if you have a family member that's sick, like I was with my mom and recently with my dad, they don't have the capacity usually to advocate for themselves because they're worried and concerned and thinking about their own health and can't take the details in. So you need someone there, a loved one to take notes. 
ask questions, push back, all of that stuff. And I can tell you, like you, I had my own circumstance in July of this year in one of the top 10 hospitals in America, and I almost died because a resident didn't listen to me. So wound up in SICU for eight days because my words were not heard. So it can happen anywhere. It's critical that you need to find your voice. And people also don't understand that, especially in like a teaching hospital, if you're not comfortable with the staff, if you don't think that they're up to par, you can say no students. You can, if there's a doctor that's on the team that may not be listening to you, um, you can say thanks, but no thanks. There's, there's things that you can do to help advocate for both yourself and your loved ones. And I can tell you from my experiences and just as of the summer, it's, it's critical to, to stay alive, quite frankly. Yeah, I had a situation, you know, surgeons are great at surgery, but they don't, they take sort of a blanket approach to post-surgery care. So, you know, uh, if you develop infections, for example, it might take four days for them to bring uh, an infectious disease specialist in for something that is obviously an infectious disease. And in their mind, you know, just bombard you with antibiotics and you're kind of wondering, okay, so what's the game plan? Like, how am I supposed to get better? And that's compounded by the fact, like, you feel ignorant, right? Because if you're not a doctor, like, how are you supposed to know what progress should be? And how do you know what's right or wrong? Like, you, you may have gut feelings and you know how you feel physically, but that doesn't mean you're correct about, you know, what should be done or shouldn't be done. Right. Right. But the one thing I always tell people, and this happened to me both recently, but also with my mother and my father, you know, the Internet can be your worst or your best friend. Yep. In my situations and others, I always tell people to do your due diligence, research your disease, research the measures on, research the doctors. I mean, we, we research what kind of car we're going to buy. You should research who's going to possibly open you up and do surgery and what other people have thought of them. You know, I've had... <laughs> over 10 surgeries in my lifetime and most of them have been complex and surgeons are great at their craft. They're yeah. kind of like, I, I look at them as like a mechanic, you know, they do the job and they get out, but the post-op is very, very important. In my circumstance, I went, I got sepsis shock uh, yep. within 48 hours. It was same day surgery and I was pretty much a goner. Me too. And I had the same thing. It got worse because when I told the resident that I was in severe pain and I kept trying to throw Percocet at it. They didn't listen until I, until I crashed and I was 70 over 30 BP in the 80s oxygen and took a rocket ride to sick you because nobody would listen. Yeah, I actually went into septic shock myself, but actually that's what necessitated the surgery because my colon burst. Yeah. Uh, but there's no pain like sepsis. I, I, yes. hope, I, hope, I hope nobody nobody has to go through it. So I, I totally feel for you and I understand. I think when the doctors heard me kind of like, the thing about advocacy is you, you can't rant and scream, right? Like you can't, you can't just right. yell at doctors. You can't just sort of say like, help me. You kind of have to tell them in a very straightforward way and ask them. You're, you almost have to be the team leader of your own health and say, okay, so what is the plan? What are you proposing? What does that mean for me? And what should I expect? Like, like information is king and getting straight answers out of doctors is a very hard thing to do, but perhaps the most important thing you can do in order to regain your health. Would you agree with that? Oh, you're absolutely right. And with me, and I, again, we, it sounds like we have a lot in common. I think that I was in a post-op floor, you know, they, they, yep. they it was same-day surgery. I wound up getting admitted. They, they think they're getting you out of there. They don't want you to get an infection in the hospital. However, when you ask for, if something doesn't go in their protocol and you deviate outside their protocol, 
they pushed back, and that's what happened to me. I think they saw me saying I was still in pain and throwing Percocet at it wasn't working as drug-seeking behavior. And then when I crashed the next day and they threw codes up and I had 10 people in my room very scared, then they were listening. But at that point, it was almost too late. And I was, you know, I was always very nice. I was never disrespectful. But I can tell you with 100% certainty, the one resident that would not listen to me, once the surgical team then came back and was in my room four times a day because I couldn't eat for six days because they thought I was going back to the OR, she was very quiet. And at one point, I did hear one of the doctors say to her, the reason she got this way is because we tried to rush her out of here. And, you know, and I did say to the doctor, you know, somebody post-op, complicated case, simple thing would have been to take labs. If you did labs, you would have seen that my white blood cell count was not where it should be. And it's kind of like they don't want to deviate from protocol because of costs. You know, again, they want to get you out of there, but then you wind up with somebody like you and I that could, you know, check out because somebody doesn't want to order labs. Yeah. uh, For me in Toronto, we have a severe nursing crisis because of COVID and previously SARS. A lot of nurses quit the profession or move to different parts. You have a lot of nurses who are close to retirement and you have a whole Mm -hmm. cohort of nurses who are brand spanking new without a ton of experience. And so the type of care you get sort of ping pongs between somebody who's like worn down to somebody who's gung ho, but probably doesn't know what to do. And of course, as you know, the nurses are are the front line, right? Like you don't get to see your doctors as often as you see the nurses. So that's compounding problems here in Canada. I don't know if this is the same situation in the U.S. Oh, absolutely. When I was with my dad on the cardiology unit for three weeks, what we have going on here besides uh, nurses that quit, nurses that were terminated because they didn't get a vaccine, we have a lot of traveling nurses and you know, I don't care what anybody says. I worked in corporate for 20 years. If you have somebody that's not drawing a paycheck from the facility and not held to the same standards, they work in oncology on Monday, they work in cardiology on Tuesday, post-surgical on Wednesday, how good are you at your craft? And there's also a rub between the nurses that do draw a paycheck from the facility that actually work there versus quote-unquote floaters because they're getting more money. They're not held to the same standards. And Every floor has an idiosyncrasy based on the diagnosis, and it's just, like you said, it's hit or miss. Nurses are absolutely the front line. I've rarely met a nurse that I did not like. I've met a couple, but I feel like they, like when when I crashed, I mean, my nurses acted right away. They they did everything to resuscitate me and do what they had to do, and it was the doctors just kind of staring, like looking like, holy cow. God, this just happened. And I just, you know, of course, I'm dying. So I'm like, I told you, <laughs> yeah. you know, but the nurses acted immediately. They didn't need to be told. What yeah, to no, do, no, no. But- I, I wasn't I wasn't suggesting that nurses as individuals aren't doing their job. I'm, I'm, I, I think it's a systemic issue, like just oh, n- sure. not enough nurses, not enough well-paid nurses, not enough well-trained nurses yeah. of a certain, you know, experience level just because of what the world has been going through. Time for one last quick question. What do you see as the top tip or tips for self advocacy for those who might find themselves in this situation? Find your voice and also research your diagnosis, medicine, doctors, and look to what I call healthcare versus sick care. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Andy Donald, Gabrielle O'Hare, Dr. Dan Werb, and Melissa Melanthi. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, 
contact information for our guests and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The fall issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Boston wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.